0: So, uh, a few weeks ago, we spent some time on a Sunday evening considering the opening verse uh, of John's Gospel. And we spent some time thinking about the very first verse of John's Gospel where we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that verse, we were taken back in time to the very beginning of the vast expanse of human history. We were taken back to uh, the very creation itself. In verse 3 we read that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. But having been led back to the dawn of time, verse 1 invited us to go back farther still, didn't it? We were led back to the beginning of time and we needed to go back further still. We were invited to peer beyond the horizon, as it were. For John took us to a viewpoint where we caught a glimpse of how things were before the first scintilla of time in the universe. For there, in the first verse of John's Gospel, the scene went and we were t- In the beginning. In the beginning, we were told, was the Word. And the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Son, the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Son, and the second person of the Trinity, we were told, was with God. Well, we spent some time thinking about what it was like for the word to be with God in the beginning. And we saw that there was the most intimate of relationships between the Father and the Son. So much so that in uh, a few chapters further on, in John 10, 30, Jesus declares, I and my Father are one. And we also thought about Psalm 16, where verse 11 tells us that in God's presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. So then we were shown that in the beginning, when the word was with God, the relationship between the father and the son was one of 100% pure, unadulterated joy. There was no grief, no pain, no sin to intrude upon the delight that subsisted between the Father and the Son from all eternity. But we also saw that while considering the relationship of infinite bliss and pure delight, that which had subsisted from the beginning, that it did not continue unchanged forever. And we were reminded of this in our reading this evening. In verse 14, we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was the great change that took place. We're going to take a few minutes this evening to move on from thinking about the word in the beginning. And we're going to move on and think rather about what it meant for the word to become flesh and dwell among us and to help us in this we'll ask 3 questions about the word becoming flesh what happened why did it happen and what was the cost of it happening what happened why did it happen and what was the cost of it happening so firstly then what happened when the word became flesh The word became flesh. Those four words sound really simple, don't they? The truth is that down through the ages, a whole host of theological errors have arisen over the meaning of those four words. Therefore, we need to be very careful to stick to what God has revealed to us about the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. One commentator commentator says this, it is better not to touch the bottom than not to keep within the circle. Well, there are are great depths that could be plumbed, but we don't need to go diving too deeply this evening. Rather, we're going to try to keep within the circle and hopefully we won't stray too far. So, We're just going to highlight three simple truths which will help us understand what happened when, as we're told in John chapter 1 verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Firstly, we read that it was the Word which became flesh. John didn't say that Jesus Christ became flesh because the name Jesus wasn't given to our Lord until after his incarnation. And by stating that the word became flesh, John takes us back to that verse that we looked at last time. He takes us back to verse 1. He takes us back to the word who was with God from the beginning. John highlights that this wasn't an angelic messenger who came to Bethlehem. It was God himself. Because we're told that in verse 1, the Word was God. By telling us that the Word became flesh, John also highlights that it's in Jesus Christ that God is revealed to us. When we read a book, or we engage in a discussion or a debate, we use words, don't we? Words are used to describe reality. And words are used to define what is true. And what's true for words in general, they reach their apogee in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the word. No angel could adequately represent God to us. It had to be God himself coming to earth who would represent God faithfully. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate word. For in him we do have supreme reality. He is the absolute truth. And indeed in verse 18 of the passage which we read. It tells us no one has ever seen God. The only son who is at the father's side. He has made him known. So then. John tells us that it was the Word, the second person of the Trinity, God Himself, who became flesh. The second thing, the second truth that we can home in on is that we're told that the Word became flesh. He didn't become a man like Adam before the fall, one unaffected by sin. While Christ did not sin himself, he entered a world which had the effects of sin in it. Creation, we're told in Romans, uh, we're, we're told was groaning as with the effects of sin. So when he became flesh, his body, like ours, experienced the curse, the groaning that sin had brought into this world. In his human body, he hungered. He thirsted. He was tired. His body, like ours, sweated with exertion and hurt when it was injured. Jesus was the son of a carpenter, wasn't he? And if he ever hit his thumb while hammering in a nail, it would have bruised and bled like ours. In Hebrews 2.17, we're told that he, that's the Lord Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So when John tells us that the word became flesh then he's emphasising that the Lord Jesus assumed an entire human nature. He assumed a human nature like us, yet without sin. And John asserts that his nature consisted a true human body and soul. And then thirdly the third truth we need to Highlight is that we're told that the word became flesh. Now that doesn't mean that the word ceased to be what it was before in the sense of ceasing to be God. Rather it tells us that the second person of the Trinity took on something more. He took on human nature. Augustine explains it like this. He says, he did not change what he was... But he assumed what he was not. What's more, although the Lord Jesus had these two natures, one nature didn't swallow the other up. You can contrast this with making a cake. I know there's one or two good cake makers here in the congregation. When you make a cake, when you bake a cake, there are different ingredients that you put together and combine to make a new Separate, distinct entity. But the two natures of the Lord Jesus Christ remained perfect and distinct. It's what the theologians call the hypostatic union. But it's not an easy concept to grasp. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because this concept concerns God. And we are merely his creatures. He is the potter. And we're merely the clay, so how will we fully comprehend the one who made us? JC Ryle says this, it's just one of those great truths which are meant, which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but just to be reverently believed. So then, John, Chelt, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh. But John goes on, he tells us that the Word dwelt among us. He wasn't a ghostly figure, but he was a real man who lived alongside John. He was a real human being, as real as you or I. But John also distinguishes the Lord Jesus from you or I because he goes on to tell us that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The divinity of Christ was never, for even a scintilla of time, laid aside when the Word became flesh. On occasions his divinity may have been veiled in some way, but he was and indeed remains Truly God, as well as truly man. So to sum up, in Christ, we find two natures, truly divine, truly man. Two distinct and separate natures, but in the one person. Well, if that tries to answer the question as to what happened when the word became flesh, we need to move on. And we need to think about why the word became flesh. What was the purpose of this great momentous event? Perhaps it seems rather dry to put so much emphasis this evening on these theological minutiae. Perhaps it seems a bit academic to try and explain this fancy concept called the hypostatic union. Perhaps it seems pedantic to spend so much time highlighting that from the moment of the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ had these two natures. But friends, this constant, undivided union between the two perfect natures is the very thing which gives infinite value to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think for a few moments on what the Lord Jesus Christ means and is to those who love and follow him. Firstly, the Lord Jesus is our prophet. He is the one who reveals the plan of God's salvation to us. We've already seen in 18 that no one has ever seen God, but that the only son who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So you see, as perfect God, who's better equipped to know the mind and will of God? But as perfect man, who is better than the Lord Jesus to reveal that to us? Surely Moses was speaking the truth when he promised in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers the lord jesus christ was that prophet he was from among the jews because he was a perfect man and as a perfect but as perfect man and perfect god the lord jesus is the only one who could reveal god's plan of salvation to us so clearly how wonderful it is then that the word became flesh and that our high priest is both perfect man and perfect god Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is our priest. He is the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. But the Lord Jesus had to be a perfect man to be an effective sacrifice. If he hadn't been a man, he wouldn't have shed his blood when crucified on the cross. And without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us there is no remission of sin. So Jesus had to be man to shed his blood in order to be our sacrifice for sin. But, but this isn't all, because in Hebrews 10, 12 and 14 we read, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How could the death of just one man be sufficient to atone for the sins of so many? God told Abraham that they would be as many, those people would be as many as the stars in the universe. How could the death of one perfect thousands upon thousands of men and women down through the centuries who trusted in Christ? Consider for a moment just your own sin. How many times have you broken God's law this week? Through your deeds or your words or your thoughts? How many times do your motives center on you and your interests? rather than being devoted exclusively to the glory and praise of God. Now multiply all that sin by the number of stars in the universe. This is the sin that deserves to be punished. This is the sin that Christ had to take upon himself. How could a single offering be sufficient to deal with all this sin. The sin of all those who are being sanctified. Aren't you so grateful that the Lord Jesus wasn't just a man? Aren't you so grateful? Because if he had been, then surely he would never have been able to bear our sin. It's only because he is God that that is possible. How wonderful it is then that the word became flesh. And offered himself a sacrifice for sin. But thirdly, the Lord Jesus Christ is our priest because he continues to intercede for us. In Romans 8.34, we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died as a sacrifice for sin, also rose from the dead. And even now, is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for his people. The word became flesh, but this process has not been reversed. Even today, the risen Christ is sitting next to his father, sitting next to his father, is both perfect man and perfect God. Hebrews 14, 4 verse 15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in Every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So you see, as perfect man, Jesus understands our frame. The Lord Jesus sympathizes with us as we struggle in our daily lives with the burdens of life. He empathizes with us as we face tiredness and loneliness and hardship. He sympathizes us when we face temptation and opposition because he suffered and faced all those things himself. But how wonderful it is though that our high priest is also God because as he intercedes on our behalf to the father, he does so not as one of God's creatures. Even the angels in heaven have to hide their faces. But our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfectly God. He deals with the Father and intercedes on our behalf as an equal. How wonderful it is then that the word became flesh. And our high priest is both perfect man and perfect God but then lastly the lord jesus is our king for in colossians 1:13 we read he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son our lord is not a ghostly spirit he's a perfect man even in heaven and as perfect man he's a fit king to lead us to rule over us and defend us but our king is also the beloved Son, his God who exercised his dominion over the whole universe. The powers of darkness and even the devil himself, Satan, are subdued under his divine and irresistible power. His sovereign will as God is applied for the good of his people and the church of which he is head. How wonderful it is then that the Word became flesh and our King is both perfect man and perfect God. Why then did the Word become flesh? Friends, don't you see that the Lord Jesus Christ had to become flesh in order to become our mediator? If he was ever going to be successful in the mission to save us from our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ had to become flesh. If he was to rescue us from the hopeless situation and lost eternity we faced, he had to come to us as a man. If he was to redeem us so that we're purchased by his blood to become his precious possession, he had to be a perfect man. And if we are ever going to have a hope of eternal life with God, then the Lord Jesus Christ had to become flesh. Without doing so, none of this would have been possible. Well, if that's what happened when the Word became flesh, and if that gives us an idea as to why He had to become flesh, what was the cost of the word becoming flesh. On the fifth of November each year, our village has a firework display. And uh, for a modest community it's quite impressive. A lot of people come to it. And uh, like any such event, there's always a problem when you go to it there are so many people there it can be difficult to see and uh, particularly when the children were small we would sometimes have to move around to try and find the best view well we we need to do something a bit like that here because in order to get another view of this great event described in John chapter 1 verse 14 we need to move from John's gospel to the epistle of Paul, to the Philippians. Because there in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul describes this momentous event, but he describes it from a different perspective. This is what he said in verse 6. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here in these verses we find what it cost the word to become flesh. For here we're told that by Being born in the likeness of men, he became, some versions will speak of no reputation. He became nothing. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ was not humbled by an external force. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself by an act of his own voluntary humility the Lord Jesus Christ became nothing. How do you measure the extent to which the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself? We're told in these verses in Philippians that he was in the form of God. He was the creator and sustainer of the universe, the son of all, before him and then we're told that he became a man John Flavel says this for an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a fly or a worm had been no such great abasement for they were both but creatures The distance between the highest and the lowest of species, of creatures, is but a finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far asunder. But for the infinite, glorious creator of all things, to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. You see what he's saying? The comparison of an angel into a fly or a worm is nothing compared with the comparison between God and being in the form of God and then becoming a creature. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and became a creature, but not any just any creature. He could have become a perfect creature, he could have become an angel but he became a man he became a man but not just any man he could have been a great king or a successful merchant but he was born to a poor woman in a backwater in Israel who was engaged to a carpenter he became a man but not just any man he could have learned his adoptive father's trade. But he didn't. He became a servant. And he wasn't just any servant either. For told that this servant was obedient, even to the point of death. And it wasn't just any death either. It was a death on a cross. We sang about it in Psalm twenty two, didn't we? In verse six, I'm a worm and not a man. By people scorned, reproached by all, and those who see me shake their heads. They sneer at me, and thus they call. The Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and died a death on the cross. Death on a cross so that our sin could be nailed to the tree, along with the creator of the universe. My friends, how do you measure the cost to the Lord Jesus Christ in order that the word might become flesh? If you're not a Christian here this evening, please think on what you've heard. Think about Christ's condescension in becoming flesh, in becoming a man. Isn't this the most extraordinary thing? that the Lord Jesus Christ done? If you're inclined to dismiss the gospel message or if you're inclined to ignore it or neglect it, can I ask you a question? And the question is this. What more, what more would you have wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to do than this in order to save you? But if you're a Christian here this evening, then take time to meditate on the extent of God's love for you. Consider how the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself in taking on human flesh. Realize that he endured all this for what? He endured all this to secure your eternal salvation. As the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Think upon this truth and be grateful. Consider when the word became flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself and became nothing. And give glory to God for the wonder of his grace to us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It opens up uh, vistas which we can barely begin to even begin to comprehend. But we thank you that you do reveal your word enough about yourself and about the mystery of the Incarnation for us to reflect and meditate upon what you have done and to be eternally grateful. We thank you that indeed the word became flesh. We thank you that in doing so, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly and voluntarily humbled himself, humbled himself even unto death on a cross. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect upon this this evening, that it might fill our hearts with joy and delight. But most of all, Lord, that it might fill our hearts with love, love for the Saviour who we know loved us while we were yet enemies of him. We bless you, Lord, that you have provided the only one who could possibly secure our salvation Indeed, Lord, we are debtors to grace alone. And we bless you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness to your people, which is so undeserved and has been poured out upon us. Friends, work colleagues, family members, even now, in Jesus' name, amen.